Hi, my name is Scott Reveley. Would you please join me as we pray? Our great Heavenly Father, you have been our God from of old. You are a God above all gods. I ask that you would make the gospel precious to us this morning. And would you be pleased to open up our eyes that we might uh, see the world for what it is, see uh, you for who you are, see our hearts for what's in there. And God, I pray that we might be uh, completely yours as we submit to you and submit to your word. And would you help us learn to pray as uh, the psalmist prays. And we'll thank you for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is God's job? What is God supposed to be doing? Now, I, I don't mean running the universe. Of course he's supposed to do that. But what is his job with respect to you? What is God supposed to be doing for us? At a minimum, and I think this probably is the minimum, I think he's supposed to be our shepherd. He's supposed to take care of us. He's supposed to feed us. He's supposed to protect us. He's supposed to watch out for us. And if you're like me, if you have experience with God, then you take great comfort from the fact that he is your shepherd. To be cared for by the God of the universe is a fantastic thing. But what, if you, what do you do if that doesn't happen? What do you do when God seems to ignore or neglect you instead of shepherd you? When your prayers bounce off of heaven, how do you relate to God then? When God doesn't seem to be your shepherd, I want to suggest to you that you remind him of his relationship with his people and the damage that neglect will do to his reputation. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 74. Psalm 74 is a corporate complaint against God for his seeming neglect of his people. It begins by framing the complaint in very clear terms. O oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you purchased of old, which you redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. The question in this first line is so poignant. Make no mistake, it is a reasonable expectation for you to think that God is your shepherd. 
It says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You're probably familiar and have probably been comforted on many occasions by Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Your right to gain great comfort from God being your shepherd. It's right to expect him to care for you, to comfort you, to feed you, to protect you. But when that doesn't happen, you have to come to grips with it in some way. This psalm is about how you deal with the fact that you expect different things from God than you get. That you expect God to be your shepherd, but instead his anger smokes against you. So Psalm 73, which we looked at last week, is an individual psalm. It's a psalm that is brokenhearted about the personal and individual disappointment that a person feels when they when the bargain they have struck with God doesn't play out like they expect. Psalm 74, on the other hand, is corporate or collective. You see, our relationship with God is more than simply individualistic. It's more than me and Jesus. Our relationship with God is both individual, and corporate. And so we need psalms that speak to both of those aspects of our relationship with God. The conversation with God in this psalm takes place because God doesn't seem to be helping his people. So in our case, this psalm might apply to us when the church seems to be getting shafted and God doesn't seem to care. Verse 1 explains the corporate experience of God's people. It seems that God is angry with them. He's not shepherding his people. In verse 2 is a heartfelt appeal for God to remember the relationship with the people. Remember those you redeemed. Remember Mount Zion. Marcia and I just went back to Montana for a vacation. And uh, we have a lot to remember there. We drove by the home where I first laid eyes on her. And I told the girls, right over there is where I first set eyes on your mom. And the other guys talked about how she was cute as a box of speckled pups. And I want to say to you, I remembered that. But it's not the kind of remembering that you have when you fill out the answer to a test. It rather is an emotional act of remembering. It's an act of remembering something that really matters to you. And that's what he is asking God to do. Remember the sheep of your pasture. Remember your congregation. Remember Mount Zion. 
And then he goes on to say the, or state the problem. In verse 3, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared against the midst of the meeting, your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. In all its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They have said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. And so here is a statement of the problem, the thing that is making him pray. And he says, that the enemies of God are striking at the heart of what it means to be the people of God. Or, I could put it out the other way, it's say the, the enemies are attacking the very center of God's covenant with his people. When God says, I will be their God, they'll be my people, and I will be with them. That's what is being destroyed because they are attacking the sanctuary. They are destroying the temple and the other places where God's people go to meet with God. So then there is no meeting with God. There is no identification with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so I want to sub uh, subject to you that this uh, problem... The, the trauma, the attack of these enemies is a spiritual attack. More than it is a physical attack. Because their focus, the focus of these enemies is to destroy the connection of God and his people. It is to destroy the spiritual reality that God's people experience. The psalm is probably written shortly after the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. Yet the Babylonians aren't named. Their cruelty is never referenced. All that is talked about is the relationship of God to his people and his, re, his reputation as a superior God. God's reputation is at stake because it appears that he is no longer powerful and worthy of worship. And so there is a spiritual attack on the God of Israel and on his people. This makes me think that we're talking in Psalm 74 about spiritual enemies more than national or physical ones. It is as though the author sees past the smoke of the destruction to the spiritual forces behind it. These are God's enemies. And so, how do you identify God's enemies? How do you know if you're dealing with something in reality, in your reality, that would fit this psalm? After all, you're never going to bump into Babylonians. But there are spiritual enemies that will inflict pain 
on you, on us. I think the way that you identify God's enemies is to notice if they are destroying the sanctuary and the meeting places of God's people. They are profaning God's name. Now when I say that, we're not really talking about people who are simply writing graffiti on a church building. That isn't it. Because the church building is not the sanctuary. Though sometimes we may call it that. The place where God meets human beings is still his temple though. And God tells us that the temple is the church. It is the people of God who are now his temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 say this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. And so when you see something that is destroying the temple of God, you can assume that it's an enemy of God. When it is attacking the church, when it is destroying the church, it's God's enemy. Another factor that points me in the direction that these are spiritual enemies is the idea of signs in this text. It says that they put their signs in place of Israel's signs. Or they put their signs for signs. What does that mean? Where do they put them? They put them in the temple. You could think of it this way. They ravaged the temple and planted their flag in the temple. So it doesn't look to me like the big deal here is that there is a Babylonian flag flying over the citadels of Jerusalem, though that may have happened. Rather, the issue and the problem is that the flags of other gods are flying in the temple of the living God. The signs of foreign gods inhabit the temple of Yahweh. This gives us some indication of what kinds of things might qualify as these other gods for us today. When I'm talking about other gods, I'm talking about idolatry. I'm thinking about the human tendency to make secondary things primary. When we make the temporary things ultimate, we're doing what idolaters do, and we are flying the flag of an idol in the temple of God. So what flags are there that might fly in the church besides the banner of the gospel? In some churches, you may see the flag of family. Family is a big deal. It is all about making the family successful. And if you look around the church and identify the church as a family primarily, they're flying the wrong flag. 
The church, in some respects, supplants the family as a primary center of identity. So if you plant the flag of family in the church and say that's what it's about, you're flying the wrong flag. In other churches, you may see the flag of politics. This is an especially tempting flag to fly now and probably for the next several months. And I would suggest that there are likely at least two political flags. One on each side of the political spectrum because both sides claim high ground. To fly the flag of conservative politics and claim that the triune God of the Bible is on your side or to identify uh, that with Christianity is to fly a substitute flag. Or to fly the flag of progressive politics and claim that the triune God of the Bible is on your side and to identify Christianity with social justice. Fly a substitute flag. These are both spiritual issues and neither of them can co-opt the God of the Bible. See, even when I say it that way, to co-opt the God of the Bible in service of something else is to fly the flag of another God. I think they're both spiritual issues and both desire or even demand the fruit of the gospel without the root of the gospel. In the world, Jesus isn't welcome on either side though both may appeal to God or even Christianity. But what they do is they plant a secondary flag for those whose hope is in the King of Kings. And they invite you to put your hope elsewhere. I'm sure there are other flags. I'm sure there are other places that or other things that people would... uh, identify with and bring them into the church and plant them there as though they belonged when in fact it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is our banner. I say I hope that you get the idea that it's so so easy for the enemy to invade the church with other ideas and dare I say other idols. And when we have another flag or sign that waves in the church, we have the dilemma mentioned in this psalm. The secondary signs or flags belong to spiritual enemies and they rob glory from God. And they steal the connection that God's people have with Him through the mediator Jesus Christ. And so we need to be on our guard against these substitutes and these other flags that people might plant in the church of the living God. He picks it up again in verse 9 with that same idea. We don't see our signs. There is no longer any prophet and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? 
Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Wow, the language of verses 9 through 11 is somewhat familiar. He reiterates the concern about the signs or the symbols. We see the wrong identifiers, not gospel identifiers, in the church. And then he suggests that one of the problems is that we experience the silence of God. And herein lies the pain. There is no longer any prophet. There's no one to tell us how long God is going to delay. We don't have a direct line anymore. We don't know what God is up to. And dare I say, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever wondered, how long, oh God? How long am I going to have to wait? How long will the enemy continue to gain ground? Will your church continue to be weak? How long? And when is God going to give us any information about why life is so hard? This is the century-old complaint of God's people. How long? Why won't God simply put an end to it? Is the enemy going to shame his name forever? I love verse 11, asking God why he has not taken action. It says, your hand is in the fold of your garment. I think probably the way that you dress, the way that I dress, I would probably say, God, your hands are in your pockets. Why don't you take your hands out of your pockets and do something? You ever feel like that? Feels like that to me. I mean, I frankly am tired of the gymnastics we have to, you know, do all the time around COVID. I am tired of the news that I see on my social media feed. And I just say, how long? God, why don't you just take your hands out of your pockets and do something about this? When I see the polarization that divides our country begin to divide the church, I say, God, how long? How long, oh Lord? Why is this still happening? Take your hands out of your pockets and get busy. Help us here. And so you have the conflict or you have the problem or the struggle is that there's no indication that God is going to give any help at all. And then the psalmist turns a corner, verse 12, and he says, yet God is my king. God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open the springs and the brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights under the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Verse 12, I think, is the centerpiece of this psalm. Because while verse 1 
voices the complaint that he's not taking care of the uh, sheep of his pasture. In fact, he appears angry at them. This is an affirmation that explains why the author expects God to be a shepherd. It explains and states that God is his king and that God works salvation, so he must be the one who is going to bring the answer. His temple should not be invaded by foreign deities. He affirms this, and we've seen this affirmed over and over in the Psalms, yet it appears like God is not acting like a king. He is not bringing salvation. He is not doing his job. Yet, he affirms that God is his king and God brings salvation. But it's interesting, he follows up this affirmation of God's kingship and salvation with an emphatic rehearsal of God's spectacular deeds. These are not just any deeds, though. They have a telescoping reference to creation and to the deliverance from Egypt. These two events are the ones I think he's referencing here, and they provide more than ample reason to trust God, even when my current circumstances appear less than ideal. Let me, let me explain why I think he's being emphatic here. Each of these verses contains or starts with the word you. Okay, so what? You. Like, that's not a very big deal. And it's spelled out, especially in the original language, very clearly. Because every verb in Hebrew, every active verb, has a person and number implied. In other words, uh, it's either plural or singular, and it's either, you know, first person, I or we, second person, you, or third person, they, or he or she. And here, these are second person verbs, and so you don't need you, because the verb itself carries the idea that, that you are going to do something. And so in the original language, you don't need all these yous, but they're here anyway. Because he is speaking to God in a way that is emphatic and forceful. You might think of it as a lawyer who is making leading statements or asking leading questions. You were at the scene that night, the scene of the crime, right? You had a knife in your pocket, right? Am I correct? You stormed out of the bar the night before the murder in a fit of rage after speaking with the victim. Did you not? And it's like, you did this, you did this, you did this. And the effect of these statements is not merely to remind himself that God is active and powerful and strong, but rather to remind God. It's an attempt, I think, to hold God accountable for being a great and eternal king and for working salvation 
when God is not doing that for him right now. I want you to notice, though, how the author talks about these events. He doesn't just talk about God as a king, but he is a unique kind of king. He is a king from old. He asserts here that God is an eternal and unrivaled king. Or at least that's what he expects God to be. He's not talking about a political king then. Rather, because God is a king of old, he is talking about his spiritual kingship. He is talking about his rule and reign over the entire world, visible and invisible, all of creation, in which he works salvation. And earth is that sphere where he does his saving work. Several of these descriptions uh, make that clear. They're physical descriptions. He dries up the streams. He makes uh, the heavenly lights. He winds up the seasons and the day and the night. But that isn't all that's here. Those physical acts, uh, that physical context, forms the, the context for what the author is really interested in. And I think it goes back to the earlier part of this spiritual conflict. If all he wanted to do was talk about creation, or all he wanted to do was talk about God drying up the streams during the Exodus, why would he bring up a sea monster? Why bring in the Leviathan? The Leviathan is our old friend, isn't he? If you've been online with us all summer, you may remember the book of Job. When God speaks to Job, he asks him, about how he relates to the behemoth and the Leviathan. I tried to argue then, and I'll stick with my story now, that when the Leviathan is spoken of in Scripture, he is spoken of as a physical stand-in for a spiritual entity. In other words, what God is doing here, and what the author is doing in this appeal to God, is he is dissing other gods. He's saying that these other gods and these other creation stories that you, you hear in other places in Mesopotamia, those don't count. You, God, eternal king of old, the one who brings salvation on the earth, you are the one who counts. And if you're worried, <laughs> I'm spiritualizing this or making this up, I want you to look closely at the text. I mean, the problem here is that the sea monsters and the Leviathan have multiple heads. This is not a literal sort of a thing. It doesn't work if you make it literal. What the author here is doing is he is reminding God that he's not only the God of creation, not only the God of the Exodus, he is a God who is above all other spiritual powers. He is a God above all gods. So this part of the psalm has the same flavor as the other. There is this spiritual conflict. And he is appealing to God to be up for the challenge. He's destroyed the sea monster. He's given the Leviathan in the sea to the beast of the desert for food. There is no other legitimate rival. So God... 
Why aren't you destroying your enemies? Why are you not winning now? Why are you not delivering your people from this awful situation? That's, I think, what he's doing in this section when he's so emphatic. You did this. You did this. You did this. And then, in verses 18 through 23, we get to his prayer. (laughs) We, We get to the prayer requests here in this psalm. Verse 18, remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and how a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. And so finally, he gets to the prayer requests. But before we look at them, I simply want you to think about your own prayers for a moment. Do you just sit down or kneel down or close your eyes and begin asking for stuff? I think that's what most of us do. I have to confess, that's what I do a lot of the time. Here, for 17 verses, he builds his case. Why God should act before he finally gets around to asking God for specific things. I can't help but think that we would be better prayers if we would build a case with God before we start asking for stuff. So what does he ask for here? His first request is to remember. So even in these prayer requests here in verse 18, he asks God to remember his reputation. Like the other earlier verses, don't you notice, God, that your reputation is taking a hit here? Can't you do something for the sake of your glorious name? And I think when we pray, we would be wise to expect God to be concerned for his reputation. The next prayer request is, do not deliver your dove to the wild beasts or forget the life of your poor forever. This, I think, is simply a prayer of protection for God's fragile people. The dove is a picture of fragility. It can be destroyed with just a simple gesture. And so I think in referring to the poor people and this dove, he's talking about, God, won't you protect your people? Then he Then he really gets to it when he says, have regard for your covenant. I think we need that. We need to remind God of his covenant promises because his covenant for us is is the new covenant. It's a beautiful covenant enacted by the blood of Jesus 
When God says from Jeremiah 31, I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer will each one teach his neighbor and each brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. This is exactly the issue. The people of God feel like their connection with God is broken because the enemy is destroying the very thing that would connect them with God. The place or the temple where they would enjoy those benefits and meet with the God who is now their God. This covenant, as I mentioned, is fulfilled in the blood of Jesus in his death on the cross. He understood himself to be the of this promise. He said so at the Last Supper. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. The writer of the Hebrews uses these terms in some of the same terms we have in this psalm. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning verse 22, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and two innumerable angels in festal gathering." and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We can plead the covenant that God has made with us through the blood of Jesus when we pray. Because that is our hope. That's the reason that God hears our prayers. So bring that in. Bring that into every prayer. Why does he ask God to regard his covenant? Because in his words, the dark places of the land are the habitations of violence. So it sounds like what he has in view is the covenant in relation to the power of darkness. It is this new covenant which is the means by which God ultimately destroys these powers of darkness. The death and resurrection of Jesus conquers his enemies. It lays waste to death and the devil and hell so that God will be king forever. Let me remind you of the New Testament where it rehearses this for us over and over. In Colossians 2.15 he says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Jesus, God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and he shames them. The prayer of this psalm is that God won't be shamed. Or 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Or Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Yes, this new covenant enacted in the person of Jesus brings forgiveness of sin and ensures God's victory. 
So bring it back to him as you pray. His next prayer request, don't let the downtrodden turn back in shame. There is that issue of shame again. Let the poor and needy praise your name. See, what would it look like if if we were to pray that the church would never be ashamed? That the reputation of God would be enhanced in his church? Frankly, I think now would be a very good time to pray that prayer so that God is honored and glorified in his church. The next prayer request, arise, defend your cause. I mean, you never think about it. I didn't ever think about this. But why not pray that God would stand up for himself? It breaks my heart to hear people just dismiss God and reject him. And they don't even have a good reason. They misunderstand him. And then they just put him off to the side as though he doesn't matter. God, won't you arise and defend your cause? And then he comes back to this problem at the very end. Remember and do not forget the foolish and your foes who rise up against you. God, how about if you go on the offensive? How about if you put the pressure on those who oppose you? This is the thrust of the whole psalm. Now, God, is the time to act. Now is the time to stand up for yourself and for your people. So won't you pray, not just for your own individual frustration and dissatisfaction with spiritual reality, but won't you pray for all of us, all of God's people? And pray that God would arise and defend his cause and that he would stand up for his people. Because here is the final word. The Lord is our shepherd. One of the privileges we have is to call upon him when we need shepherding. When we need him, we can talk to him. We can complain. We can remind him of the black eye it will give him if he fails. We can plead with him to remember his promises and his covenant, which which find their fulfillment in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who himself is the good shepherd. In John 10, 11, he brings us back really to the gospel and to the reason that we have hope that God will keep this promise. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so I wanted, I just want to tell you that even when it doesn't feel like you're being shepherded, Jesus, the good shepherd, has laid down his life for you. That you might be certain that no spiritual enemy will be able to snatch you from the Father's hand or snatch you from the hand of Jesus because he is the good shepherd. He has laid down his life for you. And he ultimately will make sure that you are never 
disappointed that you belong to him. And so when you are for now, take it to God in prayer. Let him know that you expect him to shepherd you because his son Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life for the sheep. Let's pray. Oh God, I, I want to appeal to you right now for your church. Father, here and really around the world, we are struggling because of uh, this pandemic that has got us off balance where we don't meet with each other like normal. Father, would you meet with us? Would you be our good shepherd? Would you stand up for yourself? Would you protect your church? Father, the, the reputation of Jesus is being um, really drugged through the mud politically and because of the actions of some. And so, Father, I pray that you would defend your own reputation in your church. Would you be pleased Put your enemies to shame that you might be glorified. So, Father, we trust you to do really as this psalm asks you and to arise and defend your cause and be good to your dove. Protect your dove from the wild beast. Take care of your church, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.